Love Talk Radio. I'm chicken now. What can I do? Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network. MJ in memory of my sister, Marcia Joyce, who started me off on this crusade. And I am so excited. I hope I pronounced your name the right way. It's Frank Escalise. Is that the right way to pronounce your last name, I hope? And that is perfect. I'm very good. See, I got that right. And Vincent Andrea is here, and we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. So, good morning, guys. I am so excited. Good morning, Frank. And morning, Frank. I, good morning. morning. Good afternoon, I think. I've been up since 11 o'clock reading. What can I say? <laughs> it's, the, the pile's huge, and the books are... Not yours. That's so sad, really. Uh, <laughs> so, Frank, give everybody a ba- some of your background, and then we're going to talk about the anthology that you created and how a person gets involved in becoming part of the anthology. That sounds like fun. Uh, well, I was a police officer for 20 years in Spokane, Washington. I retired in 2013 uh, as a captain. Nice. And uh, but I've been I've been writing my whole life, and I started really getting published in 2004, first book in 2006. So for a while I was a writer and a police officer, and now I'm just a writer. Uh, I write mostly crime fiction uh, and mostly under the pen name Frank Zafiro. And I'm kind of all over the genre map in crime fiction. Uh, I write a couple of procedural series, you know, mm. PI series. Hard-boiled, uh, you know, darker stuff. Uh, no cozy, uh, but uh, outside of that, oh good. Um, that, that's that's pretty much the the whole the whole waterfront there. So how come I never got them to read? Because Vince writes scary stuff, and I have to have the lights on when I read his book, and I have to make <laughs> sure that somebody's there seriously, because I never know what he's going to write. It scares the jam, but it's so good though. Then I just sit down and read it, and then I have the nightmares for three days, and that's perfect. So I never got any of your books to read. And then I didn't know about you because I would have included him in our crazy panels that we're going to do very recently. So how, how do you decide on a on a topic for an anthology? I got picked to you on one about a million years ago, but how do you get to decide what the topic is and the theme? You know, for for a, a regular anthology, you know, a, a collection of short stories in a single volume, you know, classic mm-hmm. anthology setup. Um, my experience has been is it usually starts with just a germ of an idea, a what if, mm-hmm. or a, a premise. Uh, my friend Colin Conway recently published a, an anthology called The Eviction of Hope, and he centered it around the idea of an apartment complex called the, the, oh, nice. the Hope Apartments, and everybody's getting kicked out. They got a six-month window to get their business done. They got to get out of the apartments, and each individual story would be about one of the tenants. And so they're loosely linked, and there's some crossover, but there's plenty of room for the writer to tell whatever story that the writer wants to tell. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it, it 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 generally happens that way. Um, a grifter song is a little different in that it's a serial anthology of novella length, so ten to thirty thousand words. And mm. and and it's episodic in that every story stands alone, uh, but it's the same mm. characters and they do have their history. And so there's a, a meta arc, a uh, series arc that's happening at the same time as these individual stories. That that's so interesting because I love I you know I've read too many anthologies. No, really, I read too many things. Vince knows I read a lot of stuff. And, I'm actually yeah, I'm actually too. reading the Grifter series now, and it's terrific. Really? <laughs> yeah, I I, I just read one, and I won't tell you what the name of it is because 
They're going to be on my show next week, and oh, God, my poor, poor me. The stories are really interesting. They're about something. But when I went to give the person the question, she said, well, can I rearrange the order in this way or that way? I go, like, sure, drive me crazy before I even start. So, yeah. Um, so if you're going to write a story that's going to have villains, you and Vince create villains that are, are the same or different. Because, Vince, you have villains are my favorites because they scare me. I don't know how you create them and make them so evil, which is probably becoming my new personality lately. Seriously. Well, I told, I, I, I've said this before. My, a lot of my villains are uh, my friends. <laughs> so I, I just, you know, I use them as models. I want to be the teacher in the novel. I've always been the good one. I want to be the rotten person just once. Oh, I have to get you in there, friend. I'll get you in there on yes. one of these. I have to be we'll so, the villain. I know, I did. The Karen Vaughn made me, um, Francesca Luciano, whatever the heck it was. And I was a publisher, and I stole somebody's ideas, and I got away with it at the end, sort of. So I said that it wasn't Francesca wasn't evil enough. So Marsha tells me she listens to your podcast and YouTube. What topics do you focus on? Because I, I, I can't listen to things on my phone. It bothers my eyes. But sometimes I just listen and don't look at the stuff. But what do you what yeah. do you, um, what do you, what do your podcast about? Because Frank does them also. Right. Yeah. And um, Frank's way ahead of me. I mean, Frank, your podcast is so slick. It's it's uh, it's it's, oh, really? it's really great. But uh, what what um, I started mine in I think May, just be, just before I went away, and uh, I just had this idea that like instead of like doing a, a doing a, a podcast about uh, where I interview other writers or because that's already being done, being done well um, by mm-hmm. like Frank. Um, but but I, what I wanted to do was, was uh, something that is, is strictly about the writer's life, not, not mm-hmm. how to write. You know what I mean? I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you mm-hmm. how to write. I'm not going to tell you how to write a novel. I'm not going to tell you how to write a short mm-hmm. story or I'm leaving that up to other people. But I wanted you, I, I want people to know what, what a real writer's life is like. So, like, wh- whether it's just me, my, my daily activities, or whether it's, uh, you know, um, uh, my travels, um, whether it's relationships, anything anything that has to do with my writer's life is fair game. Yeah, but that's so interesting. It's not as boring as some of the topics that, you know, I've been getting, like, why do you write this, and I don't really care. Have you noticed that I, when I go and I ask somebody about a book, I will never say to them, how come you wrote it, because I don't really care. Or why did you become a writer because you are? I, the boring stuff, I mean, I get yelled at, like, well, how come you ask those questions? Because nobody wants to look at the boring. You want to know something different and something, right. something yeah, that I mean, matters. Yeah. Right. My, my point was, like, I want, you know, like, because readers – yeah. They're going to read my stuff, but they're like, who is this guy? You know, and like, I want people to really have an idea who, who the author is. I want to take them along on adventures and stuff like that. And then hopefully they'll be like, well, I kind of like the writer. So therefore, if I like the writer, maybe I'll look more into his work. Well, they should read all of your work. Cause it's no two, what, what I love is that nothing's the same. And you never write I know. the same that, thing That's twice. a blessing and a curse. That's a blessing and a curse, believe me. Well, I'll tell you what, I got some really nasty reviews on Population Zero because people didn't realize why I wrote it. And I said, you know oh, what, no. maybe I really did a better job. Yeah, there were some people on on Goodreads that gave me bad reviews, but they didn't read the book. They just rated it for no reason. And I just oh, went, they control. I, you know what, I don't care because it didn't matter. But all I know is that I've been getting an awful lot of reviews on Goodreads from people I don't know that just downloaded the PDF of all sorts of stuff, and I just ignore it because you have to have it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter right. because cause I know right. I'm great. That's all that really matters. <laughs> it's all it counts. Well, it counts. Not really. I, 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 well, as soon as I get as good as the two of you, then maybe I'll be okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm going to do another Faces Behind the Stones. I have an idea, but I have to have 10 minutes to write it. So how do you incorporate... Oh, your professional life as a police officer, as a cop, in your novel. And do you have any? Do you have a main character in any of them? Is there a series that I haven't read, and why haven't I read it? Seriously. <laughs> well, uh, the the second question is yes. Uh, I'd say that the River City series is my kind of my flagship oh, series. Nice. It's, 
the the first few books were in that series before I branched out, and then I continued to write in that series. And it was set up more as an ensemble cast. So uh, think like Hill Street Blues or NYPD Blue or, you know, something like this uh, where there's, you know, multiple characters and you and you get to experience, you know, everything that they're going through and the storylines follow different characters uh, at different times. But uh, it didn't work out as well as I had hoped in that, uh, or actually I should say it worked out better than I hoped because a, a central character kind of did emerge. And so for me, the core of the series uh, has, has become – uh, Officer Katie McLeod, um, because she kind of incorporates this or encompasses this uh, idea of the humanity of the police officer, which was something I was really striving for, something that, that I wanted mm. to show. More than just a, a, a cliche, more than just a badge or a uniform, you know, uh, the person behind it. And so she experiences, you know, the the doubts, the fears. Uh, that that uh, an officer might experience in different situations, and and yet she, you know, she keeps she doesn't quit. She keeps on, and so she has that tenacity and that idea of service um, that is so common in the profession as well. And and so because she does such a good job of showing that, I end up pushing her to center stage uh, pretty pretty regularly. I'd say she's. Uh, more than a first among equals. Uh, she's definitely, if this was a TV show, she'd be getting top billing. Well, that's interesting, because I just read, and I won't say the title of the book, that I have to interview the person in December, about a police officer, and I just was kept trying to say, if you're given the job of being the head of a murder investigation, get some spunk. You know, like, don't back out, back down. Don't don't worry about what the guys think. If you're in charge, you need to be in charge. And that bothered me because I, I was like, all through the book, I wanted to smack her in the head, like, wake up. It's going to be okay. And that that's the hard part because how do, how do males, how do males, you know, deal with a female person in charge? Let's say that well, she was the captain. It, well, it's different, I think, now than it maybe used to be. Um, and and but it, it is a male. It is still a male-dominated profession in terms of numbers. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that Katie deals with um, is being a female in a male-dominated profession. And in, it is a profession where uh, you know you ask how I how I incorporate you know the, having mm-hmm. been a professional. Well, one of the ways is bringing cultural aspects of the job into the stories. And and here's a prime example. You know, everybody, when they come on the job, they have to prove themselves. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you were, you know, a, a major league baseball prospect who blew out their knee to the point where they can't play sports anymore, but they can still be on the job. That guy has to prove himself, and, and, and so does every other uh, – uh, you know Tom, Jane, and Mary. Well, unfortunately, at least in the past, if you were a female officer, you not only had to prove yourself as an officer, but you had to kind of get over the fact or get past the fact that you were a female officer. So you almost had to double prove yourself. Um, and and maybe the proving process took a little longer. Like you, you might be able to prove yourself mm. with one good event, you, you, how you handled a particular situation or a case. People might be go, oh, kid's fine. Kid can handle it. If you're a female officer, maybe it's like, huh, that went well. I wonder if she can handle it. And then you maybe have to do it again or maybe three times before people buy in uh, to to that. And so Katie dealt with that for, for quite a while as she was cementing her, her, her reputation. Um, and, and that is an element or was an element of law enforcement. I think that's changed significantly, although I doubt it's gone away entirely. You know I can, what if, I can inter- if I can interject, hey, Frank. If I can interject real quick, um, I can totally back up what Frank is saying because um, I did a, uh, a colonel in the state troopers and who started in the 80s. In the 80s, it was extremely different. It was just like Frank mm. was saying, that, you know, from what she's told me, you know, you had to prove some, like you're like one of one woman out of like 100 men. And then things started changing a little bit in the 90s, then a little bit in the 2000s. And and now I think that she's going to be like the subject of the video um, on how like she literally went from being like a cook in a diner after college to to like one of the top female law enforcement officers in in New York State. So 
um, what Frank is saying is, is spot on. And Frank, I have one for you too. How, how do you do it? How do you read fiction like mine and be like, this wouldn't happen? <laughs> you know? Yeah. You must. You must. You must be like. How, you know, like. Yeah, you must have to sometimes shut off your your, <laughs> your professional police filter just to just to let the fiction do its work for you. Yeah, you're, it, sometimes. I mean, you you always try to watch a, a show or read a book or, or whatever. Uh, you know, as a as a viewer who wants to enjoy the story. And so if, if, small de- if small details are wrong, most of those I just breeze right over, unless it's a key plot point, like that everything is hinging on this and it's completely wrong. That can irritate me. It's more pet peeves that get to me. I don't know why. Uh, the two that seem to bother me the most are, are when people just completely get rank structure wrong. And I don't mean a little bit wrong, but like totally wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest one, though, is when you see a patrol officer especially, but even a detective, arrive on scene or get into a situation that's going to be a gunfight potentially, and they take their weapon mm. out and they rack the slide. Uh, oh, that, I, that, that just kills me every time. I'm like, so you're riding around with, a, with an empty gun, basically. That's, uh, I don't know right. a cop in the country. I don't know a cop that's done that since basically Wyatt Earp when it was dangerous yep. to have the hammer resting on a cartridge. You are so, so absolutely right because, because my, my friend, well, I was just going to say, my friend, my friend keeps around in the chamber. Yeah. What about the violence right, on this program? That they, you know, I watch Criminal Minds. My husband's addicted to it. And some of that, they can't possibly, when, when they go and they get a, uh, somebody, a suspect in, and the suspect says something and they beat the crap out of them. You're not supposed to do that, are you? <laughs> I mean, it's like, what? They're not supposed to, and they're getting away with it. It makes it seem as if that's what police officers do, and I don't think so. No, that's not the norm, is it? Nope. No, not at all. And, and in fact, uh, if, if, you know, the stuff they don't show, when, when they mm-hmm. show things like that on shows or, it or TV me. shows or movies or even in the books, what they don't tend to show is the fallout from that. So, yeah, yeah. The, the officer, the detective smacks somebody around and they got information. Uh, but what you don't see is that uh, if that person was a witness, now they're filing a complaint against the guy and he's going to get uh, fired or even arrested and thrown in jail for for assault, essentially. Or they don't show if the guy was the suspect that uh, he challenges the admission and it gets disallowed by the judge and the whole case falls apart. Uh, right. They don't show the they don't show the fallout for these reckless uh, actions that that are illegal. But it's fiction, right? I mean, it's fiction, and people right. want to be entertained. And so, um, you know, I mean, I'm not knocking on it as a as a literary device, if you will, because I've employed it at times. Um, but right. I try to write a series that is uh, grounded in, in, in reality. Mm-hmm. Now it's, you know, pumped up fiction version of reality. I mean, there's no way all the things that have happened to Katie McLeod would happen to one officer. Mm-hmm. That there's, it, it, it's almost unheard of. But every single thing that happened to her mm-hmm. it could happen to an officer. And the way that it happens tends mm-hmm. to be realistic. And I try to include the fallout. Uh, of, of events, whether they did something wrong or, or not, because everybody mm-hmm. knows in this world you can do everything right and still get sued. Mm-hmm. This, yep. is, this, this, this is so true. But you know what? I It's not just police officers. Every morning I, there's construction up here. Conrad has taken over the world. You could barely travel after 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> they have little, oh, seriously, right. you could literally, you have to, and I feel so bad because this poor girl is standing there for the last two months with a pole in her hand saying, slow or stop. And I look at her and I go like, you poor thing. They haven't gotten her to do anything better than slow and stop. And I just said, like, you want to be a construction worker. Don't even talk to her. And she's so pretty. It's like, she's like, just there. And it bothers me because basically I'm sure she's got more intelligence than just to stand there and go slow I mean, really. And I was I wondered one of these days. I said I was going to come out and say to her, "You're the reason why there are no accidents because you're standing here and making sure nobody gets hurt." But I don't think she realizes that. That's it's scary. Take it, take it from an old construction worker. She's making bank, Brent. I know she is. <laughs> what, what can I say? I won't. I won't tell you what I made the first year that I taught. I made fifty-seven hundred and ten dollars, and I thought that was a fortune. 
really. And wow. well, yeah, it was like nothing. And my mother sounds like writers' royalties. Yeah, so please royalties. In a good year. Actually, that's funny because I did get royalties from my last, from my, from the new one. But Amazon takes it all. That was the other thing. I mean, I sold yeah. 250 copies of Population Zero. The royalty should have been close to 2,000, and I got 512. I was like, oh, that's oh my ridiculous. God. Yeah, I know because it's Ingram and all the rest of that, and they get it all. And I, I don't even know. You can't even tell if you're getting gypped. So this is another question no. in my in my in my thing here. <laughs> um, right. When you when you put on the podcast and you, what kind of response do you get? from people, and do they ever say to you, I wish you would do one on this, or I wish I would do one on that topic? Do they ever, anybody suggest anything besides what, you know, a writer's life is interesting, because I know people think people, they think you're loaded when you make a, you know, have a novel, then everybody's not James Patterson. Right. right. So how I know do you for me, like, to- I, I mean, sometimes I'll get, like, you know, like, um, I've been getting a lot, a lot of uh, mail lately, like people like, you know, like two and three page long emails about oh, like, gosh. well, I started a novel, I started this novel, and then I, I didn't, I did, I quit it halfway through, and then I started another one, and I started this one, and I'm working, mm-hmm. and I have kids, and I'm, and it goes on and on and on, and like, so how do I finish it? You know, I get a lot of stuff like that, and and. Uh, you know, and I'm and, and the simplest answer is just sit down and finish one project, you know, and then go on to the next one or whatever, things like that. But as for me, I, I know Frank, you probably get a lot more requests for for shows, but uh, um, for me, I literally sometimes sometimes I'll just go on the air and I, I have no idea what I'm going to say, and it, and it just comes out, and it's um, you know, and it, that's just the way it is. And other times, like uh, if if I'm away, if I'm overseas or something like that, I'll know I'll, I'll want to go to a specific place to have as a backdrop and I'll talk mm-hmm. and, and that'll, that also like provides um, something interesting about the writer's life and in, in, in itself, you know? So, you know, um, like for instance, I'll, I'll be in Rome in a couple of weeks and, and I'll, I'll do one in front of the, I'll do a video in front of the Coliseum and that, and that in itself oh, will nice. be interesting. I think. Yeah. Do you ever ask people to join you that are in the country? Do they ever come on the video with you and talk about no, it? Or you just do it yourself. Right now, it's just me because I don't have the I don't have the technological skill to bring on a guest, but eventually <laughs> I will for sure. That, that is so See, that's cool. the contacts I get I, I, is you know people sending messages that want to be on the show. Um, I don't get the kind of two or three page letters that, uh, that, that Vincent gets. I will say that uh, I, I have a, a small but loyal following and I'm only discovering that sometimes because uh, a lot of them are authors and I'll, I'll have somebody on the show and we'll finish recording and they'll be like, Hey, thanks for having me on. You know, having me on. I've been listening for a while and I really like the show and I, particularly like this episode, you know, they tell you things that make it clear it's not just gin music, they're they're serious. And that's pretty gratifying because the whole reason I started uh, Wrong Place, Right Crime was to promote authors. I mean, uh, Vincent's been on the show. Uh, yeah, great, thank other, uh, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, whole, the whole point is to promote other authors. And, and the benefit I get out of it is that networking piece. I mean, I've met a lot of people I may not have otherwise met. Um, but it feels good. It's like what you're doing here today, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're providing a service, a, a benefit to, to both Vincent and I. And it, it feels good. It feels good to, to push other people and to be supportive. Um, and let's face it, even before COVID, I spent a, a couple of years living a hermit's life, and so the podcast has been a pretty good social uh, outlet as well. Exactly, exactly. No, I, I love doing this. It's a lot of fun, but I get emails like um, from publicists. I have a book for you. I mailed it. You don't. I mean, they mailed it even before they asked me if I want it. I don't know how they figure out where. And you, when when would you like the interview with the author? And I usually say after I read the book and see if I want to promote the author. I have to read it to know that it's something that I want to put my name on. 
and a book that I want to you know spotlight. And I think in the I don't even know how many years I've been doing it. I think only twice I said I wouldn't interview the author because I felt the book disagreed with my point of view, and I really didn't think it had a, a message that I wanted to bring out. That's rare. Fred, you get, you, get, you get some major, major, major league authors and publishers calling you. Yep, I do. So I had Robert Zagoni two weeks ago. If you haven't read yep. when the uh, when the world when the while the world played chess, it was a phenomenal interview and it's a phenomenal book. Yeah, and I'm on the list, but I'm very disappointed. I'm on the list for John Grisham's new one, the judges list, and I read some of his reviews and I emailed the publicist. I said you should really encourage him to do an interview with me. It might help. That's all I said. Sure. And he said, yeah, well, what can I say? You can't have everything. Why yeah, do I get the major authors? I've got Vincent Zandri. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And I've got a whole bunch, and I've got a spam phone call, and then they can go stick a sock in it. I, I can't stand these, these baloney phone calls I get, yeah. No, I, I mean, I've, I've gotten Tess Gerenson and Gary Brava and Iris Johansson. As a matter of fact, Tess Gerenson, um is the first New York Times author that I emailed all by myself and asked her if she would be on my show. And then when she said yes, I was like, oh, my God, she actually said yes. Yeah. So, That's great. I, you know, it's it's a lot. This is so much fun. And the reason is also because of this dumb pandemic that doesn't want to go away, I think people have forgot how to be nice. And I think that right. they forgot that there are other things in the world besides this horrible monster. So, Vince, you create fear and unique plots, and I'm trying to figure out one for my next craziness, but how do you decide on what to write about? I mean, every character is so scary. So you've got desperate measures. When am I getting that, by the way? I just have to put you in my schedule. Uh, I know. I have, to get, I have to get some author copies, and uh, they're coming. They're coming. Um, and when I get them, I'll send you one for sure. Uh, and that because yeah, that one's uh, my own company, Bar Media. So uh, I, I need an assistant, Fran. That's what I need. I need an assistant. I got to call the university and see if somebody wants to intern. And there's got to be like some uh, English major or writer yeah, or sure, whatever yeah. like, that would intern. You know, um, so I'm going to do that. But to answer your question, um, I, it's, it, I always give you the same answer. It like just sort of I just write in the dark. It, it just sort of, you know, I have like sometimes I'll just come up with a title, like The Teacher, for instance. Mm-hmm. Like I'm working on the, that's the new uh, Moonlight. And then as I started writing, I'm like, oh, you know, there was an incident that happened in, in the Albany area about 10 years ago where a really, a really mm-hmm. attractive uh, um, female teacher started sleeping with her, her students. Um, and this is a Catholic boys' school, right? Um, prestigious private Catholic boys school and she was and this this I knew this woman actually uh, and uh, and and irony of ironies I actually I actually applied for the job that she got at the school and like I couldn't believe it because I was like okay here I have an MFA and two two books published by a major publisher short stories whatever and they rejected me and took this person on who had zero credentials and ends up sleeping with some of the kids, and it makes international headlines and all this sort of stuff. And so, uh, you know, okay, boom, I have this plot. But I, but I fictionalize it to the extent that, like, it's it's almost completely different from the real story, you know. Um, well, all we had in so, high school after a million years, we did have a pedophile. We did. Uh, yeah. It was, it was, and I, and what the, the funny part was, it wasn't funny, is that he was one of the top disciplinarians, and I don't know, I came into his classroom because I didn't have a computer, and he he made all the girls hug him at the end of the day, and I said, that's inappropriate behavior. Yeah, the next day, I walk into, the, and I told the principal, well, she's a complete idiot, she's still there, and I said, you know, he's doing things that he shouldn't do, and then the next day, they arrested him because he, um, two boys. And they wound up with AIDS, the kids, too, because of him, because he was HIV positive. And he spent 10 years in Rikers, and then they had the goal to ask me if I was going to defend him. I go, yeah, okay, right, next question. So you you just know now. That would be an interesting story, though. So the other thing that's the hardest part is to get marketing. How do you get your publishing company to market? Because 
Population Zero was independently published. You don't, and they did nothing. I paid a lot of money to get the book published, and then they said, for $4,000, we'll market it for you. I said, for 110 I got Karen Vaughn doing it for me every week, and she's fantastic, and it's going somewhere. So, I mean, yeah, seriously. For so, so what do you do? How do you get people? Well, you guys have no problem. Me, it's like, who is that little blonde thing with the crazy color hair? So, um, how do you how do you how do you market the books, and how do you get people to want to read them? Frank, you go first, buddy. Uh, well, that's the trick, right? I mean, it used to be yeah. that the the hardest part for the writer was getting past the gatekeepers, right? You, you get you have to. It's a hard to get an agent. It's hard to get into mm-hmm. to get published, and that was you know. So everybody was banging at the castle gate trying to get in. Uh, then, you know, self-publishing and it came along and morphed into independent publishing and suddenly, you know, the castle walls were down and so everybody's inside, you know, the keep and, and, and then the problem became one of, of uh, not necessarily finding a publisher or an agent, but getting readers' eyes on your work, being yeah. heard, being discovered, being seen. And a buddy of mine, uh, another writer, we, we've talked about this frequently, and one of the analogies that came out of it is we all feel like, you know, as writers, we're, we're at a rock concert. And we're all the smaller mm-hmm. writers. We're out in the, in the audience, and the James Pattersons and the Stephen Kings are up on stage, and we're out there kind of, you know, sh- trying to shout at this rock concert to be heard. Uh, and it's, so it's tough. It's tough. And for a long time, I didn't really do anything outside of some social media posts and so forth. Uh, and certainly the publisher I was with didn't do anything at all uh, beyond a couple of very simple things like, you know, put out a press release when the book comes out. You know, that's about it. Uh, and so that was one of the reasons why I decided to go fully independent. And so about 95% of my work right now uh, is is independent. I uh, have a you know publishing umbrella, and I I do it all myself. And I've looked into and studied you know how are the people who are selling a lot of books doing that, and tried to emulate it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know it really comes down to that old that old uh, uh, adage. You know you've got to spend money to make money. You know you have to advertise. Uh, of course, advertising effectively. That's a whole you know hour long conversation just to crack the, oh my God. the surface. Right? But that's yep. what you got to do. You got to, you got to, you know, for for the average reader out there to hear about Frank Zaffiro or Vincent Zandri, we've mm-hmm. got to work to get it in front of them. Now, obviously, you have to have a quality piece of, of of product. You have to have a good book, or yeah, maybe you get eyeballs on it and they crack the book, they read a paragraph and puke, and all your work is for nothing. So having a good book is the number one thing. But you have to have a good cover. You know, and then you have to yeah, do some sort of thing, yeah. advertising to you know get it in front of the readers, and and I, I I'm confident with you know myself and and a lot of of my friends and, and colleagues that I'm aware of you know Vincent's a good example where the quality of the writing the storytelling is is not a problem it's good sometimes it's great uh, the the hardest part is getting somebody to look at it in the first place and then the hope is that you know, they get a taste and they're like, oh, I like this book. I like this series. I like this author. And they jump from series to series and suddenly, you know, you've got a catalog of 10, 20, 30, 50 books and people start wading through your entire catalog. And, you know, now, now you're cooking with gas at that point. Uh, but right. it's, all, it's, it's all getting, getting yourself out there and, and advertising, professional advertising in one fashion or another seems to be kind of the, the entry point for that these days. I mean, uh, I think you backed me on that, uh, Vincent, right? Oh, absolutely. In fact, my take is, um, uh, first of all, I just want to say it like this, uh, what Frank said. But you know what I mean? Like, that's, Frank hit it on the head when, like, when you said, like, okay, 95% of my work now is going gonna, is gonna to be published by Frank, Frank Zafiro, Scalise Incorporated. And I, after this year, I made that same decision. I'm like, okay, enough is enough with all these publishers. I'm going to, like, Going forward, going forward from 2022 on, unless someone offers me 60 grand or above for one book for a limited amount of time, copyright time, five to seven years, I'm not going to take it. 
And, and the only reason at this point I'm even still signing traditional contracts is because um, you, get the, um, you get the trade reviews and you also get Hollywood attention. Now, I have never had anything produced, mm. but I, every time I have a, a traditional book come out, I get some sort of Hollywood attention. That's the only reason. That's, that's it. And I mean, I, and I can tell you, like, I can even get dig into the weeds a little bit on this. Um, a lot of it is up to luck. Um, for mm. instance, my first two book, my first two books were published by Delacorte in a big deal. Um, they assigned me a marketing person, and I, I even hired um, the Goldberg firm for ten grand to try to, to get it to do something. This was what, this was when The Innocent was called as Catch Ken, and it did, it sold like seven thousand copies. It like not even close to me earning out my advance. But then oh, wow. ten years later, then ten years later, I, I get the rights back. And, like, this much smaller press puts it out, sells 100,000 copies in, like, six weeks. You know, so that's just pure luck. That, that right there is pure luck. But then you could go, like, you could move on to something like a Thomas and Mercer. I did a bunch of books with them. And, like, the big secret is – well, it's really not a big secret. The reason so many people want to work with them is because they could, they could put your book on the number one Kindle spot overall if they want to. They did it a couple of times for me. And if they decide at, certain, at a certain point, well, we're not really into them anymore, they can tank your book. Oh, um, wow. And then, there's other, and then there, there's, there were other publishers I've worked with. Like, uh, I'm not going to name names because this, a couple of them still have my uh, rights, but that just did terrible marketing, terrible editing, and all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And yet they're getting so much praise in Publishers Weekly and all this sort of stuff. And, and it makes me turn around and say, like, I, I mean, and I don't mean to be cynical, but... I'm like, okay, this was just a rights grab. So that's why, like, at this point, after being in this business 22 years, um, I'm like, just like Frank said, 95% of my work from now on is going to be independent under uh, my bare media label, and that's it. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame you. But, I mean, I did, I did, I did go independent. Right at Quincy of Fortune, and they did nothing to help me. So I don't know. Yeah, well, don't 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 work with don't work with companies that charge you, friend. That 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 that's that's like vanity. That's what policy. I didn't Just, know. See, that's what I knew. But the yeah, next time I go, decide to do it, I'll let you know because don't I don't go near them. Yeah, talk to me first called, because I'll let you know. Yeah. This one's going to be called um, "Faces Number." My faces behind the stone series, Frank. I write from the point of view of the dead body behind the gravestone. So it's going to be faces. The, the last face behind the stone. And nice. I was going to, I think I'm going to talk it from light to dark because this world turns from light to dark. But before I forget, Monday, I'm going to be so brave. Monday, Dr. Maxine Thompson. We're going to talk about her book, Lineage. Maxine is a black author. I love her. She loves me. And she lived with a white family for a year. And she's going to tell her story. And the book is fantastic. On the 26th, hopefully there's no technical problems, the author of Redemptions. On the 28th, give me your best, give me your worst. And on the 2nd, I don't know if you're part of this, when we're talking about reviews, I've got five people that are brave enough. We're going to talk about what you look for when you're going to read a book and when you decide to take the book and trust it someplace else. So it's going to be interesting. And on the 4th, Marilyn Levinson is going to be there. And after that, I'm going to be very brave and get my cavity filled, maybe. I don't know. Well, I, I, I've, I've been, I hate dentists, and I can't be bothered. So in people no, no, you and, you and I are always at the dentist, Fran. <laughs> I know, but the, this, I promised I would do the cavity, but the cavity doesn't mind staying there, so I have to think about it. I don't know. So... <laughs> <laughs> this is my warped sense of humor. I can't stand it anymore. Anyway, oh my God. Um, if, if somebody is starting out before in, in writing, what would you tell them to do? I mean, when I started to write my Bertha series, which I don't know why they don't you know, read sisters, but um, my sister said, why don't you write about something you know about? I go, well, then you're going to be sorry because I'm writing about you. Huh? And then when she died, yeah. I wrote... I wrote sisters, two sisters from the Bronx. But how, how do you decide on that first thing? If you somebody's starting to write for the very first time, what do you tell them if they're not sure what to write about? I get emails like that all the time, and they say, write about something you understand that you write, know about. 
don't make up something that you know is on the internet or something. Write what you what you feel passionate about, and then people will read it. And then if you're nice, I might read it also. So what do you tell them when they're first starting out to write? To write. Uh, well, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, they say write what you know, and there's mm-hmm. some value in that. But uh, you know, mm-hmm. what you know what may not be interesting. So if you can't make yeah. it interesting, uh, nobody's going to read about it. Um, but uh, if what you know is also what you're passionate about, then that that's the right combination. I think writing what you're passionate about, mm-hmm. writing writing what you would want to read, uh, is is where where I would start. Um, if this was a young writer who who mm-hmm. was early in her craft, um, then I would you know plagiarize the hell out of Stephen King and say read 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 uh, because right. a a good a good writer has to be a great reader uh, and and to me reading is like doing push-ups for your writer brain you know um, you know it's just uh, it's just hugely important and then you got to learn the craft I mean you have to be willing to take criticism and one uh, one of the things mm-hmm. that I've I've learned even you know, decades into my writing career is how to take criticism. And the collaboration process has really helped with that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, some they say, you know, when they talk about cutting things out, they call it kill your darlings, you know, uh, get rid of things right. that you love, mm-hmm. you know, because they're, they're not important to the story or they're not critical to the story. Um, when you collaborate with somebody, it, you know, you're not killing your darling, darlings. Uh, someone else is murdering them. And so it's easy to get, you know, your feelings hurt or, or, or whatever. And getting past that and learning how to take constructive criticism, I think, is huge. Uh, people, most people that are taking the time to give you criticism are doing that from a place of, if not love, certainly uh, alliance. They're on your side. Uh, I've only very seldom run into people who, who use the opportunity to give constructive criticism as more of a cudgel or, or, or a way to, you know, make themselves, you know, uh, you know aggrandize themselves a bit. Uh, the vast majority of people out there, if they're willing to take a read of your stuff uh, and give you feedback, they're doing it because they're on your side. So even if they say, this part sucks, you need to cut it or you need to change mm-hmm. it, um, then, you know, they're not saying that for any other reason other than it sucks and you need to change it, in their opinion. Uh, and listening and figuring out how to take that advice and when not to take the advice, uh, it's 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 a it's a it's a skill. It's a skill you have to develop. And so I tell a new writer, you know, to to really work on that skill. Um, because I mean, I don't know about you, Vincent, but like, I mean, you don't take every piece of advice somebody gets you, gives you, but you listen to it, right? Yeah. Um, I have a funny story. Um, anecdotally speaking, um, when I was in writing school, um, you know, I you know, I I had basically. Let's see, my my senior year, this is what I'm trying to get at. My senior year, I had to come up with a creative thesis, and it, it had to be 40-plus pages, and it ended up being like the beginning of what would become my first published novel, The, uh, the Innocent, at the time they called it as Catch Ken. Anyway, um, I worked with a guy who was my advisor, like main professor on the thing, and like he basically made me cut the crap out of it, right? And... And at that time, I was really, really, really getting into hard-boiled fiction and uh, thrill- thrillers and, and noir and all this stuff. And that type of material went entirely against the grain of writing school, which was much mm. more esoteric-type stuff, much more literary-type stuff. They have you reading stuff, stuff like The Lime Twig, which like, it, 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 it is more effective to putting you to sleep than Valium, right? Mm. But... Um, so, like, you know, I, I'm not sure they even knew what to make of what I was writing. And so, like, when I got out of writing school, I immediately put all my little darlings back in. Totally put everything back in that he suggested I cut. And the book sells for 250000 bucks. And, 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 and this, this same professor turns around and says, it's too early for Vince to be published. It's too early. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. So from that point on, I was like, no more writers, no more writing groups, no more workshops, no more anything. I'm going to develop 
a voice that, that I, you know, that I can trust, that I like. If I'm having fun writing what I'm doing, then I, I hopefully the, the reader will have fun. So, like, to this day, I don't show my work to anybody except my editor, and that's it. You know, and, like, what I write is what I write. And usually it's just one first draft that, that gets corrected, and then it's out. Now, like, Frank, when you and I work on the grifters, that'll be different. That's going to be a collaboration. Things got to fit into place. I might not. I might not be getting something right or whatever. That's a totally different story. Um, you know, and I, I've also ghosted, you know, like some nonfiction stuff for people or whatever. That's a totally different story. But when it's just me writing what I want to write, how I, run a, how I want to write it, and, and if it's fun writing it, um, then it's just going to go out the way it is. And that's what I would suggest to a young writer, like, you know, just like you guys are saying, Write whatever you have fun at, you know, like whatever you enjoy watching, whatever you enjoy reading, you know, read a lot of it, watch a lot of it, and then just sort of try to emulate that type of thing. I, I agree with you, you because that's why I like, I like killing people off. I like dead bodies. It's fun, though. Actually, what happened <laughs> was my sister died, and I went to the cemetery, and I still don't know what happened to her that day. And I said, Marcia, if you could tell me, what happened to you the day you had a heart attack and why my brother-in-law never called the 911 for 27 minutes? What really happened to you? What would you say? So then I walked around the cemetery and I said, Mr. So-and-so, why are you here? And why are you here? And then I said, wouldn't it be cool to write their stories out of nowhere? And, no, you know, cool. some, some people thought it was out of, they were out of, you know, crazy. And one or two of them, actually, there was a teacher in my school that was wrongly accused and I wrote her story on there. So some of them are based on real-life incidents, and some of them I totally made up because of my what mind. But the last book I wrote, Population Zero, I gave to Lee Matthew Goldberg. He read it as a favor, and he told me what I had to do to fix it. And I appreciated that because no one wants to read a work of somebody that's not like one of you guys. So it's hard to get somebody to tell me, you know, you screwed that up or that doesn't look right. And I don't get upset with criticism because I appreciate it when it's positive criticism that I can fix. So right. that, that, yeah, that, that to me is no big deal. But basically, you know, when Vincent writes a book, I know I'm in trouble because, seriously, I'll read it in an hour and a half and then I'll get nervous and then I'll read it again. <laughs> I mean, the, well, the characters, are, I, I the characters are so evil. But, but you don't bring anybody back except Chase, right? You're going to bring him back, the Chase series? Oh, yeah, Chase comes yeah. back, yeah. Yep, I have a young Chase series, too. Yep. This and Dick Moonlight show. comes back, and Marconi, all those guys. This is good. You so what's next on for everybody? What's next for everybody, and when am I getting it so I can put – I can't believe that I've got all the way all the way to April. I've got something. Frank, Frank what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, between those last three exchanges, what I said, what you said, and then what Fran said, it really distills down what good editing is. And, yeah. and it's beyond just capturing uh, or beyond just yeah. catching, you know, errors and line edits and so forth. But good editing helps bring the writer's voice and intent forward rather right. than imprint, imprinting the editor's voice or or intent on the yeah. work, right. and I've been fortunate yep. enough to have good some good editors over time who who understood that and who did that, um, and uh, uh, that's you know if you run into somebody who's trying to impose their own ideas on your story or get you to change it the way that they think it should be, uh, that's not editing. That's you know that's that's a hostile takeover. So learning when to take advice and when to ignore it, like you're talking about, I think that's a huge thing uh, for young writers. Yep. So you know, well, it's so very true because no no two people have. The, I was just going to say no two people have the same aesthetic. And uh, my yeah. last book with Thomas and Mercer, I ran in. I had to run in with the editor because she was totally taking the novel over, totally taking it oh, over. God. And I'm like, this isn't even my novel anymore. So I want to get the rights back to it and put it out the way I originally envisioned it. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm just saying. No, but you, there are several kinds of editors I learned. But, you know, the hardest one is when they correct uh, spelling and grammar and they screw it up and don't get everything. Yeah. So my very first book, yes. My Name is Bertha, I went to whatever publishing company and I asked them to edit it. And it was a good thing my sister read it over and my mother-in-law was an editor. 
But when I sent him the final galley that had no mistakes, they printed it with the mistakes. So they emailed oh, me God. and they said, well, now you have to pay to get this done over. I said, that's not going to happen. I, it may be my first book, but I'm not stupid. And I refused to pay them to do it. I said, you will do it over because that's not what I sent you. And I read books by famous authors. I just read one, and I said, oh, on page 365, she's got a typo. You know, I don't tell them. When I write a review, I don't say anything. And I just read a children's book, and I read some of the reviews after I posted one, and they slammed her because they said she had spelling and grammar errors. And I said, well, maybe she was the kid that wrote the book. <laughs> it, you know what? It, it, didn't, it didn't take away from it. It didn't matter. So what? I don't know. Maybe that's me. That's what we're going to talk about on November 2nd is how do you decide whether a book is poorly edited? How do you decide when you review a book if the book is worthy of three stars, four stars, five stars, or worthy of not reviewing at all? Or do you review a book and give a negative review, which is something that I won't do ever? Because I won't pan somebody's work because I might hate it, but somebody else might love it. I Seriously. So, Frank, what's next for you, and when am I getting something to read that's good? Because I've got a pile inside that's interestingly boring. <laughs> interestingly boring. Uh, yeah, well, I'm serious. Uh, the... I, I got, my doctor was online with, with, with this girl. She's a New York Times author. He called me up last, for a Saturday. He said, at first I'm going to tell you your test results are good. I go, I don't care about that. Why are you calling me? He said, because I met this <laughs> author, a New York Times author online in the bank, and she wrote this book, and she would like you to read it. I go, gee, thank you very much. Are you going to read it also? I am reading it. It's very sad, though. It's very good, but it's very sad. I said, now he's promoting authors, too. So what what are you doing next, and when am I getting it? Uh, well, I mentioned at the top of the show that I write in a lot of different series, and so I've got a book um, lined up um, in th three of the different series. The next one coming out in the River City series, it's called Dirty Little Town. Uh, oh, nice. It's the seventh book in the series. Um, that will uh, be out November 18th. Um, and oh, I that's can send good. you uh, an arc of that as soon as a, 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 I'm comfortable. I've got all the mistakes out. Um, and then, uh, right. And I wrote a and if, with, if it's uh, large print, it'll be even better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be a, a, a digital. Uh, you can make the print as big as you want. Um, but uh, the, I wrote a series with Colin Conway called uh, the Charlie 316 series, uh, which was a four-book arc, a police procedural, were very, very interconnected story. And now that that arc is over, we've decided to continue to set books in that series, and uh, but but the books won't be a direct sequel to the, the the four book arc. It'll just be, you know, it'll happen after that, and it'll be in the same world, but it's you know not not necessarily a direct sequel. And so I'm I'm working on one called the Ride Along that'll be out um, uh, in a few months uh, in that series. And right now I'm working on the uh, third book in my Spokompton series, which is a series that, uh, you know, I write gritty crime fiction from both sides of the badge. This is from mm -hmm. the underside of the badge. This is from the criminal side of things. Um, oh, I love that. Though the That's bad guys kind of are book. featured. So. That is good. And Vince, what do you well, want? Well, I got you covered. Desperate Marriage and the Teacher. What else is coming out that I should put in my schedule? I'm serious. I have uh, oh inside that's really, I need, I need, it needs a little adrenaline, <laughs> seriously. It's coming, it's coming. Um, I'm trying to put out at least a short story a week right now. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, Desperate Measures, the collection just came out. I'll get you a copy of that. Um, oh, I'm good. about to, when I go to Europe, I'm going to write um, my um, episode in the Grifter series and Frank's Grifter series, so that'll be exciting. Um, I've got, what do I got? I got... Slender Man is coming out. That's a, that's a Jack Marconi P.I. I got The Dams coming out. That's a Jack Marconi P.I. These are novels. I got a, an, another Steve Jobs, The Plumber, that's coming out. I've got oh, Young Chase Baker. Young Chase Baker in the Well of the Soul, that's coming out. Uh, I've got The Extractors, which is a brand-new series, the first one of those. I've got American Crimes, which I'm actually putting up for free on Substack right now. I just started today. I've got, uh, as you know, Paradox Lake just came out from Ocean View, and uh, Her Darkest Secrets coming out from Suspense next year. And uh, I have Moonlight Kills. Don and Al's going to do Moonlight Kills. 
And uh, another standalone called The Sleeper right now. I'm not sure if I'm going to keep that title. And I'm working on this thing called The Teacher. So, like, I'm, I'm like, I, I, I got more, oh more God, going I, than I can keep track of. I, that's why I should, just, I should just put you in every single month or something. So, yeah, where can we, we, besides Amazon and Barnes & Noble and everywhere, is there anybody special, place special that you want people to buy your stuff? Because if they don't, they're out of their minds. But seriously, no, I'm reading a book about Guatemala. It's interesting. Um, it just gets too much. Yeah, yeah. It's good about Guatemala. The author wrote about it. Uh, uh, Paul and Diana, Paul and Carol go to uh, Guatemala. It's interesting. It's just that there's too much um, Guatemala in it, not enough Paul and Carol, but it's interesting. Um, the book I was talking about before is called Lizzie and Dante. It's very sad, but it's really good by Mary Bly. So those two are okay, and then there's the rest of them that are inside that are instead of staring at me and say, "When are you going to get to me?" I said, "As soon as I get the energy to read it." But I will, but eventually. So where can we find out about all of your books? Frank. Besides Amazon uh, and Barnes well, and Noble. Yeah, I mean the easiest place to find out anything is is frankzafiro.com and Zafiro okay. is Z A F I R O. Uh frankzafiro.com. Um I've got all the books, all the stories, uh, the podcast, the link to the podcast Wrong Place Right Crime is mm. there uh as well. Um and and then the people can sign up for my newsletter. Um and that that's always a good way to to know when the new releases are coming out and and, and so forth. Um, I would, you know, I would say if you're going to buy a hard copy of the book, um, I, I don't care where you buy it. If you prioritize your local bookstore first, um, you know, every community has one somewhere. Thankfully, I don't know how long that's going to last, but they still do. And uh, you know, buy it there. Keep, you know, buy local if you can. I think that's a great policy. Um, and but the majority of my sales, quite honestly, are through are through Kindle. So I, and, and and you know one thing I don't think people think about it very often that I wish they they would realize and and be more willing to do is you know you don't have to apologize if you use the library to read any of our books you know right. because if you go to the library and say hey I want to read this new book uh, Dirty Little Town just came out you can you know I, I want to read it will you buy it the library almost certainly if you request it is going to say sure and they're going to buy a hard copy of the book and then you get to read it so does everybody else. When it gets worn out, they're going to replace it, um, right. and you know writers benefit from that. So uh, sometimes people apologize. Oh, I read your book, but I got it from the library. No, my husband reads only library books. So I said to him, "Would you like me to buy you one?" No, that's why we have the library. So he orders something every week, and he reads stuff like what Vincent writes too. I'm just trying to get right. him to read Vincent so he could appreciate it. So Vincent. <laughs> Where, where would you say, besides, the library is a good place, but Fran reads, they send me the book, so what, I don't have to bother with that. It's it's great. And as long as they send right, it to me in print, what, what about you? Um, just like Frank, just go to vinzantry.com, V-I-N-Zantry.com, or, you know what, or Google Vincent Zandry or Vince Zandry or whatever, mm-hmm. and you'll find every, everything you need. You'll, it'll lead you to my website. And just like Frank, everything's there. All the bookstores, all the, you know, the, the podcast, all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, actually, you know, you know what's funny? You were talking about libraries. I actually go to this one dive bar. You know, you would never know it. Got motorcycles outside and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have a terrific lending library. And I give them so many free books. It's ridiculous. And like I'll, mm. I'll walk in and like I'll walk in and some some dude clad in leather will be like, oh I love the new Marconi man, you know like, <laughs> and it's, it's the funniest thing, you know, you wouldn't you know like, you just wouldn't expect some of these guys to be really into their reading, but they are. Yeah, there's a bunch of those lending libraries around my neighborhood, and I anything within walking distance, I I keep it stocked. Uh, That's a great idea. It's a good idea, and it, it's a good way to, for people to discover you, you know? Sure. We don't yep, have that yep, around yep. here. You know, as a matter of fact, they just started to let people come in to get books, you know, or to just to look around. And like I said, I just people just send them to me. It makes it so much easier than to worrying about it. 
and as long as they send me print, the one 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 or two publishing companies are not doing print, and unfortunately, because I agreed to interview the author, I got stuck sending it to my pals at FedEx, and they will print anything I want because they love me. Right. And I get. I'm, I'm like yeah. I'm like Frank though. I, I I'm the majority of my sales are are uh, e-books. I can't read on my phone. It bothers my eyes. Besides the fact that I have to take notes, mark it up, and circle and write the questions in the book as I'm doing it. And then I yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I read like about five or six a week, and that's a slow week. Wow. When I was growing up, wow. I used to read ten because my mother said, oh, God, reading. Reading is such power. But before we end, I say this at the end of every one of my shows. If everybody in the world would say something kind and do something wonderful for other people, that would be so great because the kindness is a good way to tell this horrible pandemic that you're negative and we don't want you here anymore. Maybe you'll leave and stop taking lives. It, it just bothers me. And yesterday we lost Colin Powell, and that really bothered me a lot because he was such a good person and he died of COVID. So maybe this, if everybody started to realize that we're in a world together and it's not so bad, maybe if you started appreciating everybody, Maybe this this horrible COVID thing would just disappear and say, I'm not welcome here because I'm negative. But I want to thank you both. This has been fun. You brightened my morning. Thank you. Every, great. Everybody, have a great day. The sun is shining. Have a great day. Stay positive, and bye. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Jumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.